Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Work Podcast. And today's special treat, we are going to go behind the scenes of my new book, First of a Trilogy, just recently released. Kind of go through a little bit of the background, a little bit of the structure, the formation of the book out now and available in all the book places. It is called Shadow and Crown. It's the first book of the Royal and Piper trilogy, and it's loosely, roughly based on the legend of the Pied Piper. So a general thought about this book is I wanted to do something a little bit different in that most of my books have been first-person accounts with a single POV as in a single point of view. That's just been the story. Sometimes it's been present tense, sometimes past tense, but it was all the first-person singular POV. This book and this series, I wanted to try it on multiple POVs. There's three points of view in the story. One is we have someone named Evelina. She is the aunt. She is someone who was supposed to be the heir. She was supposed to be queen. And then because of the way that the kingdom is structured, the only way an heir could become the next monarch is they have to have an heir of their own. So Evelina was married. Her husband has since passed away, but she has not had a living heir. Her brother instead has two daughters. So he became the heir. He became the king instead of her. So she kind of has a chip on her shoulder. Evelina is sort of a villain POV, but to make it more than just like, oh, I'm so mad and I want to be queen and actually add something more than that to the character, this part of you have to have an heir to be an heir kind of thing was added in because on the one hand, the stuff that she does is kind of not so great as the story progresses, not just in this book, but in the books to come. She goes from doing something that you can sympathize with and I totally get where you're coming from to like, whoa, now you went a little bit too far. That's kind of her journey and her descent. But the biggest thing was to give her something that she might be doing something wrong, but she actually has very good reasons for it. And not just I get the reason, but it could actually agree with the reason. So that's Evelina. Then we have a character, his name is Quirin, and he is someone that when we first see him, we get this sense that he's kind of a fugitive, he's a runaway, he's living on a farm, he's sleeping in a loft. There's just this sense of that he's sunken himself in sameness, he's sunken himself in quietude, he's in a world, he's living in a life that is not for him. It's a good life for people who are born into it and people who embrace it. This is not the life that he should be living. So part of him is embracing the quiet because, oh, that means that they haven't found me yet. But the other part of him is like, my life is a waste. This is how we're going to find him. And eventually we're going to find out what his whole story is, why he had to run away, etc. It's also one of those things where what he did is he was kind of defending someone, kind of doing vengeance for someone. Maybe he went a little bit too far, but maybe he also didn't because he's pretty justified in what he did. And that's going to be eventually found out. But where we find him is just in the slog of sameness. Then the third character, her name is Calrena, and she is the next queen. So instead of her aunt Evelina becoming queen, she's taking over after her father which is also part of the whole dynamic here because she's only 17 and she's not married yet. She doesn't have a kid yet, but her father has died suddenly and someone's got to take the crown and she's next in line and she gets the crown. That now has a lot of reasons for being really upset about the way things have played out. She's at this point where it's like, that's it. I'm not going to sit and complain and whine and be upset anymore. I'm taking over and I'm just going to take action. I'm going to take what should have always been mine. Kalreina, she's in deep grief and shock from her father's passing. She knew she was going to be queen, but she's not ready for it. She's only 17. And her struggle is trying to get out of this sort of shock and in action, it's not a matter of whether or not you're ready to be queen. It's a matter of you are queen now. You got to step up. You got to fight. Not really spoiler, but this is kind of what happens in the beginning is after the coronation, the queen or the monarch in this kingdom would travel all throughout the kingdom. Hey, meet your new monarch. And hey, these are your people. And it's like a goodwill tour. So Evelina arranges that on this goodwill tour, Calrena is going to be uh, left behind somewhere. And Corinne's going to be the one to find her and bring her to the farm. And the stories unfold from there. It's going to be one of these things that Kyrena's going to have to step up and be like, I can't just hide away on this farm and just hide from my problems and hide from the grief and hide from everything that's going on. I got to take an action and I got to go fight for my throne. If not, I'm not worthy of even having the throne. 
And she'll eventually drag Corinne out of his sameness and be like, this isn't a life for you. It's time for you to go and embrace what your life should be. This is kind of what's at play. Now, why did Evelina not just kill Karina? Well, so we have systems in place. It's part of the magic system that the heir has something called a conduit. That's kind of the channel of magic system to the whole kingdom. And this conduit protects the monarch against assassinations. So Evelina can't just kill her. She's going to lose her and then figure out a way to try to get the conduit from her. And if there's further questions, see how the book plays out. So that's the general idea of it. This is planned out to be a trilogy, going through this whole journey of Evelina going from, I'm going to make plans to take the throne and her descent to total villainy. Corinne's, you can't be lost in your sameness. You got to be the person you're meant to be kind of thing. And Calrena, you can't hide away in your grief. You got to step up and take control of your kingdom. Even if you're not ready, you got to assert yourself. You got to be a queen. That's the general path for each of them. And of course, other things occurring along the way. Not part of the behind the scenes, not from the story, but from getting the book out as a general thing. Thank God this is book number 10 for me. However... It's not the 10th book that I wrote. It's actually the second book that I wrote. The first book that I wrote and it's published, it's called The Sapphire Legend, part one. Then I wrote an original draft for this book. Then came Silhouettes and then came Sapphire Legend, part two. And then all the end of ever after books were written in the order that they were published. This book, when I originally wrote it, it was actually inspired by a parable I had heard in a sermon at, a, at synagogue. So just be aware wherever you are because you never know what can come from it. And there's a parable about a princess who's sent from the palace and then this peasant guy kind of finds her and helps bring her home, etc. And the parable for that is it's talking about the soul is sent down into this world, down to the body, which is kind of like a peasant guide to it. The body, though, is the guide for the soul because the soul can't do stuff on its own. You need the body to guide it and act for it. That's how it does stuff in this world. I heard that and that was kind of the genesis of an idea of there's going to be a royal who's going to be sent from the palace somehow and some scrubby guy is going to find her and bring her back. It started off actually, Karina was princess. Karina's backstory was a little bit different and... They were all actually, they all had different names in the original, original draft. The biggest thing about that draft is that there wasn't really a magic system to it. It was just kind of this story that was kind of a medieval setting without a developed magic system or anything like that. And even though I had written the whole story and spent a lot of time on it, there was something about it that I really like these characters, but there's something about the story that's not working. I'd actually given it to my brother. He had to suffer through some early drafts. And he's like, yeah, you kind of have, but it's not. He also, there's something, you couldn't really put your finger on it, but it's it's not working. It's just not going. And I went back to it again and again and again. I actually eventually got it over 100,000 words. It just wasn't going. It just ended up just being this bloated manuscript that the seed of it had these good characters or workable characters. Just the story was, it wasn't catching. So it's not an easy thing for a writer to do, and most of us are in denial about things like this, but sometimes you have to shelf a manuscript. Shelfing it often means that you won't necessarily get back to it, or maybe 20 years down the line, you might revisit it and like, oh, I, I thought this was good enough, but it's not. But I did have to eventually shelf this manuscript. And I actually wrote an article about this, Writer's Digest. You can go online, you can see it there. It's called Shelved But Not Forgotten. But even though I shelved the manuscript, then I went on to writing other books. Every once in a while, I would kind of think of it again, and just, I, I wish I could figure out how to make the manuscript work. I had so signed off on it, it's shelved and it's gone, that I even mined the original manuscript for characters for other books. For example, in Lies of Golden Straw and Human Again and Heart of a Hunter, there's a character named Yero. He's kind of like this master wizard, Merlin's kind of teacher character. And he was originally in this story, in the original draft of the Shadow and Crown book. End of Ever After, the name of the kingdom there was originally this name of the kingdom here. So I had kind of accepted that this manuscript is just not working. And even though I still love the characters and I like the general storyline, I mind it. And then fast forward, I ended up writing the Cinderella story, which if you want to hear about all that, you can go to hear the behind the scenes of the Cinderella book, the end of Ever After and all the other books. It was toward the end of that. And also I started working on other manuscripts that I started thinking maybe there's a way to redeem the manuscript. 
even though it was over 100,000 words, it had been totally mined for all these sub-characters. There might be something that I can do about it. So I went back to the manuscript and I looked it through. I was like, okay, the first thing I got to do is I got to cut a lot. 100,000 words is way too long. Also, I got to rename, etc. And it needs something stronger at the base of it. The general parallel story structure thing is good, but it needs something a little bit stronger to be based on. So I would say that at that point, the only reason why I was able to actually redoing the story is after having worked on the end of Ever After books, which are fairy tale retellings. There's Cinderella, there's Rumpelstiltskin, there's Little Mermaid, there's Beauty and the Beast, and there's Snow White. So once I had done that, I'd gone down the path of these fairy tale retellings. I wasn't specifically looking to expand that universe. There's a lot more fairy tales to tell. I could have done Sleeping Beauty or Rapunzel or I, there's a lot more to choose from. The five books, it was good and I'm moving on from there. But then I was thinking maybe there is something else that I could, there's another story out there that I could use as the basis for this. I don't actually remember all the details of it. I somehow decided on the Pied Piper. This story is going to be based well, I don't want to give too much away, but the Pied Piper is going to be woven into the story. Pied Piper in the story ends up being this sort of musical assassin. So we know the Pied Piper could play his pipe and he could guide people and he leads, assumably leads them to the death. So you got to pay the Piper, etc. So here, the Pied Piper, he still uses the pipe for death, but it's part of the magic system about how he could call forth the music of people's souls, etc. And he's going to be a, a king's assassin. So this is now the new setting for this. So really it's just the Piper character that's gonna be based on the Pied Piper. The original legend of the Pied Piper, it's not a very long story. It's maybe a couple paragraphs. It's just, it's a legend that's out there. Kind of like, did it happen? Did it not happen? It could have happened. Something like it might've happened. That became a new foundation stone for the story. And then once I had that to work on, the rest of the structure started coming together. This is already a few years later. And then I spoke to my brother about it. I was like, remember that manuscript I kept sending you? I revamped the whole thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, that, whatever. And now I put in this new magic system now. I learned from my editor to make sure from the outset to really outline the magic system and understand what's going on. Even as the books are going to progress, we get to see more of this world. There's an expansion of it. But at least from the starting point, there's a strong foundation for the legend, for the structure, for the magic system. And so I told him about it. I was like, yeah, this one scene, that scene's got to be something else. You got to do something else with your big moment scene. He made a good point about it. And then I figured out what the scene was going to be. Thank God. And now we have the book. Something else that's also interesting about this book. Originally, I thought it was going to be a duology. And then I don't remember. I was probably doing different book browsing stuff. And I remember coming across this one publisher that only prints trilogies. This is published with Fire and Ice YA. They've published all my books so far. But before I'd even sent it to them, I was still kind of stuck on this duology that I was going to do. But once I saw this, like, I wonder if I could make it into a trilogy. But here's the thing that's tricky about trilogies. So you have your starting book, introduces the world, you have the starting story, etc. all these things. Usually the third book, there's going to be a lot of momentous things going on because it's going to be the culmination of everything we've built to. And not always, but often, the second book kind of ends up being a bridge book, connecting the first book to the third book. Often that book looks like a travel book because we were in one setting. We had to overcome whatever challenges we had in the one setting. And now we're going to go to the next place and that's going to be the bigger place. That's where everything comes to edit. So on the one hand, I didn't want to do the travel book, but at the same time, if I was going to go from a duology to a trilogy, the second book was going to end up being a travel book. But I had to really think about if you write a travel book, first of all, if it's going to be the bridge from the first book to the third book, you better make sure that they're not just crossing the bridge. Someone's got to fall off the bridge. The bridge has to break. Something has to come in between the bridge. Someone has to stop their, their journey. And all these things that occur have to expand the characters, the world, etc. Not in a heavy loaded kind of way, but in a way that we feel like this is a natural progression. It's almost like make sure that it's not a bridge, make sure it's steps. We're going up, we're progressing with the journey, we're progressing with the story so that I didn't just create a bridge, it's a necessary bridge because there's no way for us to get to the other side without it. Because if not, then it should be a few lines either at the end of book one or at the beginning of book three, and now we got here. 
But if you're gonna make a whole book out of it, there's gotta have real stuff has to go on. So it's not just a bridge book, not just the connecting piece. The other thing that I realized with this book is that there are certain advantages to having three different points of view. Thing though is that Evelina's one point of view and Corinne and Cal, they're two other points of view, but they're usually in the same place. It can get tricky sometimes because with multiple POVs, that's good because when it's only first person and one POV, you only know what you see. So that's the same thing for the characters. I can't see something that I'm not in the scene. But when you include more points of view, you can now see more stuff. You can see things that the one character is not there, but another character is there to see it or to hear about it. So it kind of allows certain expansions of the story because it allows the reader to be in more places at the same time. The character can do that, but now the reader can do that. We can now be in new places with new people simultaneously as the story plays out. You have that on the one hand. The tricky thing about that is sometimes it can get very tricky with the timeline. You have to make sure that the stories line up with each other. Some people think that the timelines have to exactly match. If it's day one, it has to be day one for everybody. Day two, all the passage of time has to be the same for everybody. A lot of people though, the thought process is that if there's different points of view and we're in different places with different people, then the passage of time can move differently for each point of view as long as when all the points of view are in the same place, then the timeline has to align. So for example, if two months are passing, let's say for Corinne and Cal, we go through each day of the week for the first week and now another two months passed. But for Evelina, two months passed and now it's the last day of those two months. And then if they all end up in the same place, two months have passed for both of them or for all three of them, but at different paces of time. So different passages of time, as long as all together, it's the same passage of time for the timeline. Another advantage of doing multiple perspectives, which might've seemed obvious, but I kind of discovered this as I went along, is sometimes, especially when you're working with different magic systems or you have to have kind of a hero moment, it could seem like the hero moment came out of nowhere or it could seem very typical. Like she dug down inside and she found this great power that she never had portrayed before sort of thing. You're like, she really focused and then boom, this great magic came out of her. And I think we're kind of used to that. So we may not necessarily think twice when we see it anymore, but. Part of the advantage of using multiple perspectives is that let's say a great power has to be revealed. One of the main characters is going to need that to overcome a big moment for that character. If I want to avoid it seeming like, oh, this magic that just occurred and it comes out of nowhere and where's the logical buildup for it? Something that I could do is show it in a different POV. It's unexpected for the character, but not for the reader. The reader has already seen a glimpse of it somewhere before. So when it occurs, the reader's like, oh, of course this could have happened. They don't feel like, oh, you're doing this machina kind of moment. Instead, it feels more like a natural part of the world and of the universe because they've seen it before. They know that this could happen. I'm not going to get too specific, but I did use that trick to show up part of it, of a certain power or a certain ability in one of the POVs, in one of the perspectives. And then it's going to come up again later when it's very much needed by a different character and a different perspective. But for the reader, it shouldn't feel as much as a surprise or that it came out of nowhere because they've seen a glimpse of it before. That's also kind of another advantage that when you're dealing with a, a new magic system, you have to kind of explain a lot about the world to try to avoid an info dump or anything like that. It can be spread across perspectives. That way it doesn't become too expositional. It doesn't become just like weighed down of just explanation, explanation, explanation. Sometimes you need a little bit of it, not too much, but some just to kind of make sure the reader's in the world. But this way you get to spread it out between the different perspectives because assuming the characters know a lot, but there's also new things for them to learn. But for the reader, all of it's new. If it's spread out through other different perspectives, then it doesn't feel like, okay, now you're reading an encyclopedia. There was another thing about writing this book. There was a particular trope that I was trying to avoid. In YA fantasy, or it could occur probably in across fantasy genres, but I've seen it often in YA fantasies, you often have, let's say, two characters. One of them is betrayed as a soldier or this, that, whatever, someone who's, who's got combat experience or is combat ready, etc. And the other person who's not. They weren't trained for this. They don't have it, whatever. 
So there might end up being some sort of training montage or some sort of, okay, I'll teach you how to throw a few punches, but we have to go through this dangerous situation and just stay close. And then what ends up happening is that the person who like just learned combat four days ago, all of a sudden is being pitted against enemies who have great combat skills and somehow they dig deep and they overcome. And uh, congratulations. Granted, I sort of just simplified the process, but that something like that happens frequently. Part of it is just because the story needs it. We have to get this person through. We have to get them to the other side. And we don't want them to be helpless, sort of. So we give them a few skills that all of a sudden become these great, well-developed skills. We don't have the full passage to like, fully hone it. But for this in particular, I was thinking, how can I avoid that and do something that's slightly different? Without spoiling it too much, we do get the sense that Quirin is someone who has certain kind of powers. And Kalrena, this conduit that she has, gives her certain kind of powers. Both of them have great powers, but those powers are distinct separate powers. So they're both very powerful. They both have their thing that they do. They can help each other. They complement each other. But there's not going to be this sort of overlap of my whole life, I've been training to do this. And now I'm going to teach you four things now in five days. And all of a sudden you become a master at it or you become competent enough at it. Because there's a little bit of unrealism to that. And even if this is a made up fantasy realm, there still has to be a solid logic grounding it. It has to still make sense. So there might be parts that are familiar in the story, but I specifically wanted to make sure there was going to be a distinction between the powers that the characters have. And because of this distinction, the situation they're going to be forced into, they're going to need each other for it. And this way they can rely on each other, specifically with respect for the powers that each one has. You have your abilities, your capacity, your training, etc. I need this for a particular thing. You've got your training, your capacities, your abilities, and that's going to help us for X, whatever it's going to be. I think it actually heightens the respect aspect of the relationship for each side to say, you're powerful, you have what I don't have. The other thing that I did is often in YA, there's a main guy character, main girl character. There's often a romantic subplot or plot between them. And there isn't in this book. Some readers might be very happy to hear that or even relieved to hear that. And some may not. And I didn't really want to spoil it, but this way there's not the expectation. You don't have to be looking for it. This way you can just kind of know that the story is just going to play out with each in their respective roles. And if anyone is particularly agitated or if anyone is particularly glad about it, please very nicely let me know. We can hear what readers think about it because I've heard so often. And of course, every story has to have a romance. If there's a guy and a girl, of course, they're going to have to hook up. Think about that and write the story. I said, let me try it without it. Let's see how it goes without it. And that's something that I wanted to try for this book. Because once I was trying different things, may as well go all the way and trying different things. That's kind of a little bit behind the scenes of Shadow and Crown. Originally, we kind of get to see the Piper in the prologue. And then eventually, we'll be able to see more of him as the stories progress. That's all there is to say about Shadow and Crown. Available now, wherever books are sold. Also, big thank you, a big shout out for all the people who are part of getting this book out into the world. And for the story advice I got, thanks for all of it. Check out the book, share it with people, talk about it. And that's all for today. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. Featuring behind the scenes of Shadow and Crown by E.L. Tenebell. To find out more about Oh My World Podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My World Podcast or check us out at eltenebell.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.